welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Kenny Wolf. And Kenny is an experienced multifamily syndicator, the founder and CEO of Wolf Investments, and published author of Investing in the Dream, How to Acquire Multifamily Real Estate and Attain Total Financial Freedom. He's invested in his first multifamily property in 2010 and has since been involved in over $450 million worth of commercial real estate acquisitions nationwide and is a principal in over 5,000 units. And he is passionate about passive income and financial freedom through real estate investing. So Kenny, thank you so much for being here today and I appreciate you spending some time with us. Absolutely. Aline. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate, please? Yeah, sure. I think we got to get you some updated numbers. So we actually just passed the $507 million assets under management mark in March of this year. So we're chasing 1 billion of assets under management by 2029. So we're well ahead of the goal. So I got to reset the goal here. So my background is actually oil and gas accounting. I've actually never owned a single family rental in my life, just our you know personal residence on the single family side. But I got into multifamily, jumped right into that, invested twice passively to learn the ropes. I picked two specific property types I was looking for. One is a big fixer upper. The first one I invested in was we bought it for 12,000 a door back in 2010. And then it needed 12 grand of a door rehab, which at that time we thought was a lot. Now, now not so much with these materials and labor. But anyways, so we did that deal. I wanted to learn you know, what a big rehab fixer-upper property looks like. Who's the team, who not to use, who to use, that kind of stuff. And then the second property, passive deal. Again, specifically, I was really looking for a Fannie Mae loan deal because that actually teed up. My third investment was a syndication I put together to buy 76 units. And because of my investment in the Fannie Mae loan deal, the yield play, they count that as my experience. I was able to get a Fannie Mae loan, my first syndication deal, because I had that past experience. So, um, and again, I was trying to learn the ropes, the management companies, the insurance, you know, all those things that you need to know to be a syndicator um, and really be a great asset manager was really to kind of take notes on how to do that as a passive investor. So as a passive investor, and then transitioning over to doing your first 76 units as a syndicator yourself, what were some of those lessons that you had learned when you made that transition? And then also some of the challenges you had to face as a syndicator yourself, owner-operator? Sure. Yeah. We had seen other folks buy you know 20-unit, 30-unit deals as our first deal. And a lot of them struggle, to be honest with you, because if you buy that number, that's small of a property, it's big enough where you need professional on-site management. And maintenance, but you can't afford, uh, right? And so, really, you know, I'm big about starting with the end in mind with whatever you want to do. So, figure out what you want to do and then solve how to get there. So, really, you know, it was like, well, we want 75 units or more because that really affords you full time management, on site management, full time maintenance. You can actually afford a professional third party management company. And I think that really shortened the learning curve. So, I learned a lot through the passive investments, but, you know, the management company I was bringing in, she had. 5,000 units in Dallas, Fort Worth, right around me. So, you know, I felt very comfortable with her pro forma on expenses, revenue, you know, things like that to double check my numbers as well. And then she had, so if one of our sick or whatever, they could shift them around. So 
it really helps to buy those bigger properties. So I, that's definitely a lesson. Um, I didn't really, well, I guess I learned it, but through other people, you know, I always tell folks when you want to be a syndicator, go bigger and get that third-party property management because it really helps out and really reduces the risk too for, the, for all the investors involved. So sometimes when they say go bigger, a lot of people have that like bigger, it could be more scarier, right? It's like the bigger number of doors, it's more money, there's more investors involved. There's a couple more zeros behind like the things that you're working on. For you, it didn't seem like it was too big of an issue because you were looking at this economies of scales and the way that you were able to leverage some of the property management's time and resources on the bigger properties versus the 20, 30 unit deals. Right. And a lot of folks, and I know there's a guy that started out at the same time as me. He didn't want investors. You know, so he started out with a 14 unit, traded up to a 28 unit, traded up to a 50 unit. And because he just was deathly afraid of, not deathly afraid, I mean, that's too strong of a word, but he was afraid to take on investors. I'm like, you know, so we just differed on that. I much prefer to have investors because start with a bigger property. And I think those are much more stable. I think the risk is a lot lower on operation and multifamily operations is everything. You know, so if you don't have your operations right, you can have the best deal you buy, but it can be in the ground quickly if you don't have the right, you know, folks in place to actually run it. So I wanted to make sure we could afford that, the professional management to have that safety net. I think there's more risk behind us. So it just depends on your. <laughs> For your investors on that first 76 units, where did those investors come from? How did you build out your initial investor base as you were just getting started on the active side of things? You know, it's all about networking and multifamily. So we are passive investors in two other deals already. I went to all the meetings, went to meetups, you know, really networked. Um, that's a huge deal. It's really hard to do multifamily if you don't like networking. So if you want to sit at home and be a recluse, being, you know, on the active side of, of multifamily is probably not for you. Passive, fine, but you got to get out there and meet folks. It's a team sport. So that it was partly that, but then, you know, I had a big oil and gas background. So I was contacting friends, family, and the oil and gas world on the, colleagues as well there too. So you kind of piece it together. It was very nerve wracking. I mean, to be honest with you guys, I wasn't part of any kind of guru group or anything at that time putting together this first deal. So it was just burning up two Blackberries at the time back in 2012, you know, getting the deal done and meeting people just to, you know, fill up that investor base. And you need to do that before you get a deal under contract. You need to have a lead time to figure out when you can, or, you know, when you think you're going to find a deal that way beforehand, you can start telling folks that, Hey, I'm looking for a deal this size. These are the returns I'm kind of looking for, just kind of prime the pump. How did you educate your network on real estate or did they already have a real estate background to understand the syndication and the process? Or was that a whole period that you had to educate and to prime them before getting into that first deal? Right. No, it's a good question. So, you know, at the time I wasn't part of any kind of guru group. My investors, I had a, I, these are people I, I knew. So they already sold on me. They had worked with me before or knew me as friends, family things like that, right? So they were sold on me. So really it was selling them on real estate and multifamily because a lot most of them didn't have any kind of real estate investing experience. So they trusted me, but again, I had to pitch them on uh, real estate and then apartments in, you know, to, to be very specific. But again, it was easier to raise money, I think, because I could point to, uh, they knew I didn't have any experience operating real estate, but they knew I was a numbers guy. So that was my background as accounting. CFO at 28. So they knew that piece. They understood that I could watch the numbers, but they also knew like, so who's going to manage the operations? Because I knew I didn't know how to do that. By having that bigger property and that that professional management, I could point to that. And that really helped get some investors across the line for this first deal. And you said the first one was a Fannie loan that you did? Right. Yeah. 
And was there any particular challenges that you had to go through to get that first loan? You said that you had already invested as a past investor in two deals prior to that. So that gave you the experience for it. But were there any other challenges as well for your first deal? No, I mean, at the time, putting together, uh, together like the on the debt side, you know, they look at your experience and then they also look at, at your net worth, your liquidity, those kind of things. So at that time, I had the experience I bet, through the passive investment in that one deal. And then, but I didn't have the net worth or the liquidity to be the sole guarantor. So I had to bring in one other guarantor at the time, paid him a little bit of the, you know, of the uh, GP split, just got some shares there. But that's how I had to solve the problem. You know, as you're solving a problem or first sell as a syndicator, you've got to see what you can and can do, you know, all the hats you can do. And, you know, there's going to be some areas that you're missing, whether it's experience on the loan side, the net worth. So again, it's a team sport. So you just got to solve for the holes that you have. And how did you come across the 76 unit? So back then it was on the market. <laughs> it was a 1981 build. And the guy had taken it from probably, it was pretty bad. I see my, who I'd say a beam. It was a nice property at a eight cap way back then. You know, our goal really was to divide as a cash flow deal, but we started upgrading units. So now we still actually own that property. We've done a refi on it twice and have over 500% back to investors and wow. still own it. So that's a good one. Anyway, so we've actually upgraded, I think, almost 70 out of the 76 units at this point. Uh, we've had, you know, the handful of folks that have never moved out since we bought. The- <laughs> and then from there, what did you do to continue your journey in real estate? Did you continue to focus on multifamily right away or did you transition into triple net leases, which you're focused on also today. How did that kind of journey all come together? Sure. Yeah. So the second deal is actually a big fixer upper. And I don't recommend that for any first time syndicator. I've seen it done well once and all of our colleagues, but I think you got to have that base of operating a, a clean and easy deal first and then go to the big fixer uppers. So we did our second deal was syndication deal was a, I'd call it a D property. I mean, it was pretty bad to a C plus was the play. So 133 units in Denton, Texas, big turnaround. We knew it had foundation problems going in. We had 14 sewer line breaks. We had to fix around things like that. We had to rate entire foundation at one time, but we knew that going in. So that was our second deal to kind of cut our teeth and then really kind of expanded from there. So we started investing in other states. So Colorado and Oklahoma, Ohio, Louisiana. So we geographically, so now we're, now we're in four states soon to be in five or well today we're actually we're selling our deal in Shreveport, Louisiana. we'll be down to three that we own in but we're gonna have some in georgia here pretty soon, in downtown atlanta so anyway that's the multifamily journey and then about five years ago our investors kind of wanted some different kind of returns some wanted just a monthly you know distribution very stable steady cash flow deal and then others wanted you know much bigger you know appreciation so what we did is we started our first commercial fund we call it our CRE fund, but basically we went out and bought $7 stores, raised a fund, bought the $7 stores, family dollar, dollar tree, dollar general. And those are great monthly cash flow deals because you've got, you know, the actual parent companies guarantee the rent. So you know you're going to get paid rent. So we're not chasing rent. And then they take care of all or 95 of the operational expenses as well. So uh, it strips out the operational risk to commercial real estate. So it's all great, right? So you're not chasing rent. You're not fixing toilets like we do in multifamily. So that's a great. The downside is you'll probably have a little bit less of a return in multifamily because multifamily, we have a lot of control over the appreciation because uh, it's valued off that net income. And so is, you know, triple net properties. 
but you have long-term leases from these companies. So you can't do any kind of value add typically. Sometimes you can, but a lot of the times you can't really get creative on these. But again, that's not really the point. They just wanted monthly cash flow. So yeah, we're on our fourth fund now at that. We've got 32 Walgreens, Dollar General, CVS, those kind of properties across 12 states. And then all have performed very well through COVID. None of those stores shut down. Nobody asked us for rent abatement because we've just focused on the high credit tenants, the publicly traded tenants. So that was great because some of our colleagues that own strip malls or ship centers and all that through COVID had bigger issues for sure. And then, so that was the monthly cash flow thing we we're trying to solve for investors. And then the other one was the big appreciation. So we also now do ground up multifamily development in Texas and Ohio. And then we also have two years ago kind of fell into buying vacant office buildings in downtown locations and then converting them to multifamily. So we have four of those projects right now with another three under contract. So this is going to be our jam. So basically, we take an office building and buy it pretty inexpensively and then repurpose it to mostly A-class multifamily. Most of them are going to have restaurant retail on the bottom, and some of them are going to have office space on floors two and three. So it's going to be a mixed use. But anyways, they're great projects. It's a lot of work. Three of them are historical projects. So there's some historical tax credits. And Anyways, so those are great. Those kind of development projects, those are great for those that want to really have that big appreciation. We do a cash out refi return on most of their money and then cash flow quarterly after that. So it was just a different type of return that folks were looking for. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about. Serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. How do you typically evaluate and value like an office space conversion to a mixed use property for retail and apartments above it? And then also, how do you account for the historical tax credits into all of that as well? Right. It's a lot more math than multifamily <laughs> buying. Um, so, I mean, really, a lot of components. Of day, yeah, it is a lot of moving parts. So, really, for our development, you know, the high level underwriting, we got to feel like we can double their money in two to three years on paper through the cash out refi and then. Cash flow quarterly, they're kind of high level how we look at those development fields, whether it's ground up or office conversion. So that's the high level. But then, yeah, and every building is different. We have two of our offices, buildings that we bought. One was built in 1898 and one is 1905, right? And then we just bought one down, another one in downtown Cleveland. It was built in 1980. So obviously, the 1980 property is a lot different budget and rehab scope than like the 1905 or 1898 building, right? So there's just a these deals and all about is you can get creative because you're working with architects on how to really back into these. And then the answer are great. I mean, you've got basically it's got to be a historical building. And if it is, then you get a federal grant after five years, it turns into a grant after five years, but you get 20% of your construction budget as a grant. And then a lot of these also we can get state historic tax credits as well. They're not as big, but our deal in downtown Cleveland, we won the and state of Ohio, it's a competitive process. So we actually won that last year. Turned out to be another $5 million of kind of grant money for the project, which is a huge win. So if you can get those lined up, it's a huge return for our investors after year five because they turn into a grant. 
What kind of due diligence do you have to do? I mean, I assume it has to be quite a lot more in-depth upfront due diligence, making sure everything is aligned. And especially with being a historical building, there's a lot of permits and everything like that. There are certain materials and things that you need to maintain the historic part and aspects of those buildings, right? So what kind of other due diligence do you have to do to make sure that your numbers are good? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, on the, you know, comparing it to multi, your existing multifamily to office, I mean, you know, in multifamily, we walk every single unit before we buy it. We get a great printout, you know, they do an 80 point inspection. So we were pretty thorough on this. We check the roofs, not pretty thorough. I should say we're really thorough, but we check the roofs obviously too. the plumbing, like, you know, we do a full blown scope of each property, but for office, it's a little bit different, right? So we have, you know, sometimes elevators, we still have roofs, we got cooling, Sometimes we can use a chiller for the HVAC for all the units. Sometimes we do individual HVAC all on the roof. So it just depends on the building. So really, we get in there with our GCs that we've worked with in the past on these office conversions and and architects very early on in the process because we need them to walk the property with us because they have good experience. They have a team together. You really kind of kind of jump in to see you know elevators. Like I said, the Windows, if you're going to have to replace those, if it's historical and we have to match the metal edge of the windowsill, right, or whatever, how much is that going to cost? So there's definitely some more in-depth. So we're not about in-depth because you're really looking at the whole building pretty thoroughly, but there are some other moving parts because you got to figure out what you have to keep for the historical aspect. What part of the hallways, what marble you're going to keep. If it's in good shape, you keep it all if it's historical. But there's other aspects to that as well that you got to bring in consultants and all that. So. Does the permitting aspect of it, of getting those types of things replaced, just because of the pure fact that it's a historical building, does that process take longer than a typical normal permit that you would have to get? Yeah. So in the cities that we're doing it, so we have two in Cleveland, two in Atlanta. We're going to have three more under contract. But in the cities that we're operating in, we don't have to get rezoning. In some cities like New York, Chicago, you have to, if it's office to multifamily conversion, you've got to rezone it. But in the cities we're at, it's just zone commercial. So we have to go to the city, say, hey, this is our plan. And they basically check a box. So there's really no approval process, which is nice. That cuts down on that. But you're right. If it's already a historical building, you can basically pick up and go. Probably adds an extra three to six months to your process. If it should be a historical building, that can take over a year to get that actually on the National Registry and all that. And it's a lot of upfront money you got up front because you got to get the consultant, the historian to walk in and pitch the federal government as to why it's uh, the state really is who you go through first. And if the state signs off on it, basically the federal historic tech credit accepts it as well. What makes a good historical building opportunity for you versus what would you look at and pass on? I mean, so I'm a big history buff. So, uh, you know, really it's, I'm a sucker for a historic building. One of them, well, I I don't want to say it's the coolest because we'll have some investors that are jealous, but (laughs) one of the cooler ones that we have is we bought the Rockefeller building in downtown Cleveland. So it's a building the Rockefellers built in 1905. It's got on the 17th floor, 42 of the Rockefellers walk-in safes are there. Pretty convinced John Rockefeller's ghost is on 16. So anyways, but it's really, it's really cool building. A lot of my staircase triple all the way up. The actual craftsmanship, the wrought iron they put into it, really need to see. So those properties, you know, are really cool to do, but you do have to make sure you stay in budget and all that. And those historic tax credits will really help it. If we didn't have those, we couldn't build back these historic buildings like that. Some of them are not historic. So again, that, so those we don't get the tax credits for, but typically those we're looking for newer buildings. Late 70s, probably at the latest for those, just because 
you're going to start running into some, you know, bigger issues with the building to bring it back to life on there. For the tax credits aspect of it, are you able to realize it that first year after you acquire it? Or is it after the improvements are had and the construction is done that you're able to benefit from the tax credits? So normal people like you and me uh, can't use these historic tax credits, not really well. So we actually sell those for 90 cents on the dollar. And it used to be 80 cents. Now people are, are buying it for 90 cents. But for one of our properties, we had Warren Buffett, JP Morgan Chase, and then Monarch beating each other up for our to buy those. Warren Buffett was too cheap. So he, he didn't win. But it's pretty cool. You know, that's who we're selling it to. So those folks can actually use it. So we sell it to them. And then we structure that as actually a loan for five years, very low interest rate, because we all know it's going to turn into a grant by year five. And then it kind of wipes that out. So, so that's how it turns into a grant. That's the logistics of that. I see. So what kind of people are actually able to use the historical tax credits? They can use it. folks like Warren Buffett, you know, ultra net worth, you know, high net worth folks can use those type of tax credits. So it's um, even on the state side, we actually sell the state historic tax credits as well to other folks that and high net worth folks in that state that need it or businesses, banks often need it as well. Oh, that's so interesting. It's a totally different side of the business. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So we have a consultant that is still on, on payroll to help us work through all this stuff. It's a, too much for one person. Well, he knows it all. But for me, it's like, you know, I've got to, it's a lot of going on. So you have to have that person that's really good at that short tax credit. How do you, I guess, I don't know if advertise is the correct word, but how do you communicate that these tax credits are available to those people who are actually able to utilize it? On that, there's brokers involved. So you have brokers that specialize in historic tax credits. So yeah, talk about a uh, niche of a niche, but <laughs> there's brokers involved and it's a lot of the same folks that, that want to buy it. There's a, you know, fewer, it's a smaller, you know, pond. A fish that you can actually use that. So I'm curious, did you get into real estate knowing that you would eventually do historical types of buildings and these ground up commercial uh, development projects and triple net leases? Did you have that ambition getting started in real estate or did it organically out of need formulate into this? I mean, I, you know, if you asked me, you know, 10 years ago, if we'd be doing historic downtown office conversions, multifamily, I would kind of laugh and say, there's no way that those are too big. So even back then, I wasn't thinking big enough, apparently, right? So, but you don't. So it was just, just organically, you know, Rockefeller was the first one we bought. And it was really just came from, I met to a colleague here in Cleveland, we were 1,500 B and C family here. So we were driving back to the airport and told him. I mean, I love to buy one of these multi-phase. He, he found, hey, I got this deal called the Rockefeller Building. And me being from Texas and oil and gas, business, the background, I was like, absolutely, I'm on a plane like the next day. I didn't even look up the building. I had a Rockefeller downtown office building I'm in. So anyways, just kind of fell into it. And really, it's going to be a big business for us going forward because each of these buildings are probably going to, on the low side, be worth $75 million and up to, you know, $350 million values on these properties once we're done with it. So definitely going to be a big business for us going forward. And we kind of made our name for ourselves in the space now. So how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? Because you've been part and you've been doing so many different types of aspects within real estate and you've touched all these different areas and you've gotten so much experience in it. So how has that impacted your life so far? Oh, it's been great. You know, for those that want to be syndicators, I tell them it's a job. I mean, some of the gurus and stuff. I can pick on them because I'm a free agent, but some of the gurus talk about like, it's only four or eight hours a week. Like, you know, you can still be a syndicator and be on a beach. That's just not, that's not accurate. You know, I mean, it really, the decision is, do you want to go to the office and work 
and maybe even more than nine to five, but that's something that you love, you know, or do you like your job and want to be passive? Sorry about that. <laughs> he wants to join. Or what? So yeah, so on the syndication, I mean, that's really, it. it's a job. You got to take it serious. You're focusing a lot of money at risk, you know, so it's a lot of, uh, that was the question is, you know, do I want to do some build, do and build something that I love or do I want to stay in a nine to five job? You know, that was kind of the decision for me. And just a quick follow-up to that. At what point did you realize that you wanted to pursue this side of things full-time and leave the normal, typical nine to five? And what kind of drove you to that decision? So I always knew I wanted to to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I was my first job. I would collect the golf balls that would fall into our backyard or our neighbors. And then I'd post up on the second hole and sell used golf balls for 50 cents. So that was my first job. And it only lasted like a week uh, because they they found out at the country club and they ran me off. (laughs) So anyways, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've always been. So uh, I'm one of those that just kind of goes what I want to do. But you know, also knowing that out of college, like some folks do start businesses and all that. And that's great. I wanted to kind of get, I picked a smaller business to get involved with um, right out of college to learn it more because the smaller company, you wear a lot more hat. And so I was exposed to a lot of stuff and it was oil and gas, but it was still accounting. So it, and it's business too, it translates. So really that was kind of my path, but I always knew I wanted to be my own boss. So I just, it, it took me a while to realize that real estate was where I wanted to do it. And if there is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? So I started investing in real estate at 28 years old. I wish I would have done it at 12, right? I mean, that's always the biggest. So I always tell folks like start early and young. Our daughter did her first single family rental at age 10. Wow. And she kind of led the process. I just was there in the background kind of introducing her to folks, but I could, that's a whole nother podcast, but anyways, super proud dad about it, but you know, start young because it's it just the compound interest you can do on investing in real estate at a young age is just phenomenal. And then also doing a project that, you know, you learn so much priceless on what the education that she's learned by doing that, you know, and she sold it, made 50 grand in two years. So I told her that doesn't happen all the time, <laughs> wow. uh, but, then she had a tax, but then she had a tax problem. I said, now you got a tax problem. So we worked through cost minus depreciation to offset the gains and all that. So, you know, 12, 13 years old, like she knows more than most adults about real estate investing, which is great. That's what you want for your kids. So start young is the biggest advice I've got. Oh my goodness. At 12, 13 years old, not only does she have that incredible knowledge and and power dad family behind her, she also has a probably a larger bank account than most people at her age. Yeah. So now like I asked her, do you want to come work at the office? And she goes, how much are you going to pay me? I'm like, yeah, I'll pay you like, you know, 12 bucks an hour. She goes, why would I do that? I'm like, all right. Touche. I can work for myself and I can make more than that. I already got passive income coming in. Why do I need that? (laughs) She's learned well. She's learned well, maybe too well. Exactly. Yeah, maybe too well. Yeah, absolutely. So what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I think it's passion. And then just because, you know, it doesn't always go smoothly. You know, you have to be that person that loves real estate. Sometimes getting into the weeds, almost, you know, sometimes literally. And, you know, just getting it done. We buy these properties and everybody projects them as a straight line. And some of the properties actually do that. You know, they just like clockwork. But some you get in there, no matter how much due diligence you do, you've got some kind of curveball that's thrown at you, whether it's the type of residence or, I mean, just whatever, right? Or you have something like boiler blowout the second day, although you did an inspection and it looked fine. Like, you know, there's all these things that could go wrong. So just got to have the team around you and just the drive and the, you know, stick it out. 
itness, that's not a word, but you know, the guts and the determination to get the job done and make it a successful investment. Wow. Well, Kenny, I so appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all of that with us. Yeah, we probably have to talk a little bit more, uh, maybe on another podcast episode about how you actually taught your 10-year-old daughter <laughs> how to start real estate yeah. investing and how she was <laughs> able to do that. And what are some of the steps and the, the teachings that you gave to her before she got to that point in time? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll try to get her on too. That would be that would be fantastic. <laughs> I would love that. Okay, now we have to set it up. <laughs> okay, all right, let's do it. All right. And so, Kenny, for those people, for our listeners out there who want to also learn more about you, your business, what you're doing in the space, where's the best place that they can go? So probably the best place is our website. It's wolf with an e-investments.com. We have a YouTube channel. We put on educational video every Thursday. So we have lots of those videos out there. I think we're almost 100 episodes out now. So a lot of content on there. Um, my events, uh, we co-host an FIN conference three times or It's coming up in Seattle. We always do the first one in February in Houston. Last This February, we have 600 people show up. So it's a pretty big event, but it's just education and networking, nothing to buy. No $30,000 to buy them and national speakers. It's a really good event. Uh, so we do that three times. And if you look a little Dallas, we do a monthly meetup, kind of rotate between a property tour, a networking event, and a guest speaker. So, um, but we make ourselves available. Oh, fantastic, Kenny. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time today. Absolutely, Ali. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.